So something pretty amazing happened in our family this past week. A few months ago, we learned that our ninth grade daughter, Haley, wanted to play softball. And since uh, she attends with my other daughters a pretty small Christian school, even though she only weighs about 90 pounds and she's a freshman, they put her on the varsity softball team. And so Haley is enjoying her season playing softball, and when she steps up to home plate with that bat in hand, her coach has taught her to get down nice and low. Since she's only about five feet tall, when she squats down nice and low, her strike zone's only about like this. And so half the time that she's up to to bat, she gets walked because it's hard hitting that little strike zone three times in a row. The pitchers have a tough time with that. So she steps up, and they were at Hesperia Christian School, their arch rival in softball. And so she steps up to bat, and this pitch comes in that Haley kind of likes. And she takes a swing at it, and she connects with the ball. And the ball skips across the dirt between second and third, and it's making its way to the grass. But there was a problem. There was a shortstop right there. But Haley ignores the shortstop. She drops her bat, and she starts boogieing for first base. And so she's moving toward first base. And what almost always happens in that situation is the shortstop picks it up, throws it to first. She's out of there five seconds before she hits the bag. But she's running for first base. And as she's running for first base, the shortstop blocked the ball that was going toward outfield but was fumbling with it. And so she's fumbling with the ball. Haley's feverishly running to first as she's got two members of her team advancing to the next base. Haley keeps running, and she tags first. What she couldn't tell what was happening over her left shoulder was that once the shortstop grabs the ball, she hurls it to the first baseman about four feet over her head. So Haley touches first, and now the first baseman has to run after the errored thrown ball. And so she hits first, and her coach yells, Run for second! And so she says, okay, she rounds first and starts running for second. And as she touches second, the first player up in front scores a run. And the second one makes her way to third. And so she touches second. Christine's in the stands thinking to herself, I can't believe it. Our 90-pound freshman just got a double. But what happens once the first baseman gets the ball, she hurls it to second base, and her throw is as bad as the shortstop's. So the coach yells, run for third. And so Haley's running for third. Those little legs are moving. And she's running for third. Meanwhile, the second player scores a run. And so she hits third, and things were going so much in her favor, the coach yells, go ahead and run home. So she's running for home. Whoever it was that made the error gets the ball and throws it to home. The catcher fumbles the ball as she slides in safely to home plate. The crowd goes wild. My 90-pound freshman daughter got an in-the-park home run with three RBIs. Woo! Yeah, it takes after her dad. (laughs) Uh, One proud daddy. Amen? I need you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 27 in just a moment. As we study God's Word together today, if you're visiting with us today, we've been in recent months making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Luke. It's the longest of the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record for us 
the basic details of the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And as he presents the gospel presentation in the book of Luke, he has a very unique perspective and includes some details that are not included in the other three writers. But it's a marvelous account of Jesus' life, death, and ministry. And so in Luke chapter 9, where we left off last week in verse 27, we're going to start in just a moment. I encourage you to pull out your message notes from your bulletin. Have a pen or pencil handy so you can fill in those blanks and jot down some notes along the way. We hope that you don't just listen attentively to the Word on a Sunday, but you go back to those notes and go back to this passage during the week and allow those truths to sink in a little bit deeper. As I think back to this last Tuesday with Haley, uh, she was the only one that got a home run that day. She was in a league of her own on Tuesday afternoon. Maybe not after that time, but on that particular day, she was in a league of her own. And as we look at this great passage in Luke chapter 9 today, we're going to see that Jesus Christ was in a league of his own. And so we're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 27. Say amen if you're there. Here we go, starting in verse 27. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Uh, Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. May God bless us as we study his word today. If you look back in verse 20, verse that we looked at last Sunday, Jesus gave his 12 disciples an opportunity to answer a question that is probably the greatest question Jesus ever asks anyone. Who do you say that I am? The disciples had already acknowledged the false rumors spreading around about Jesus. There were thousands in these crowds that were following Jesus by this point in his ministry. And those thousands of people had all sorts of fanciful ideas about who Jesus was. They had bought into all sorts of these crazy lies and myths and half-truths. And so he had given them an opportunity to answer that question. What what do the crowds say about me? What are the people out there in these crowds? Who do they say I am? And they say, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist, somehow reincarnated, because John the Baptist had been killed a few months earlier. Some people think you're Elijah, come back to life. Some people you think think you're one of the old prophets. And he turns to them and asks them the question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the main spokesman for the disciples, stepped forward and he said, You are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. Over the next few verses, Jesus, for the first time, spoke plainly about what awaited him up ahead in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he would suffer a lot. He would be rejected by the Jewish leaders. He would be killed. And on the third day, he would be raised back to life. So here in Luke chapter 9, for the very first time, he's giving the specifics about what awaited him up ahead in Jerusalem. And the disciples, as they heard Jesus say this plainly for the first time, they must have just been kind of dumbstruck by that information. They had come to understand his true identity, that he was the Christ and the Son of God, but they didn't understand what that meant. He wasn't going to be a great political and and military kind of general, kind of Messiah, kind of Savior. He wasn't going to be driving out the Romans and and setting up some sort of international uh, Jewish empire. He didn't come to lead an army. He came to save us from our sin. So Jesus made it clear it's not enough to simply believe that He is the Christ and the Son of God. You need to understand what that means. And what that means is that He was going to suffer and die. And those who chose to follow Him as Lord and Savior must understand that they too could suffer and die as they follow Him. And so we looked at that great verse there in Luke 9 where Jesus says, Anyone who chooses to come after Me must count the cost. And He must take up His cross and follow Me daily. Jesus made it clear that as He had a path of suffering, those who follow Him must be willing to count the cost and choose a path of suffering if that's what's required of us. Verse 27, and also the first half of verse 26, look at those verses again. Starting halfway through verse 26, it says, The Son of Man will come in His glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. That's where we left off last week. Here Jesus makes it clear that one day He will come back to earth in great heavenly glory. He will sit on a throne and fully establish His kingdom on earth. But before that great day comes, some of His twelve disciples would see the kingdom of God. Now, for the last 2,000 years since Luke first wrote this gospel account, uh, Christians have read this, and even non-Christians have read this, and asked the question, what on earth does Jesus mean? Because it's been 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't returned from heaven yet and officially set up his kingdom where he sits on a throne somewhere here on earth. So how could he possibly say that some of those disciples that were listening to him 2,000 years ago would not die before seeing a glimpse of his kingdom? Aha, there must be an error in God's word, right? Not so fast. There's two possibilities of what Jesus meant. Both make sense. Possibility number one, Jesus is referring to his transfiguration that happened a week later and was witnessed by three of his twelve apostles. We'll talk about that transfiguration in more detail here in a few minutes. But in a nutshell, that transfiguration was like a, a sneak peek of his kingdom on earth. It's like a sneak peek of his kingdom. As Jesus appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah, it provided Peter and James and John with a foretaste of His glory when He returns to earth to set up His kingdom. So uh, many Bible scholars believe that that is what Jesus had in mind. He was talking about the transfiguration. That fits the context well because here in Luke, Jesus says some of you will not die before you get a glimpse of the kingdom. And then just one week later, Peter, James, and John experience a glimpse of His kingdom. So that interpretation fits the context pretty well. 
But others say, no, I think Jesus was referring to something much, uh, on, a, on a much grander scale. And so the second possibility is that Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit's descending upon the 120 Christians on the day of Pentecost. We read about that over in Acts chapter 2. By that time, Jesus had already died on the cross. He'd already risen from the dead. He'd been with his disciples for another 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And 10 days after that, the day of Pentecost came. And in Acts 2, you can read about this. uh, The Holy Spirit descended. And the best way they could describe it, it was like tongues of fire resting on each of them. And they were able to speak in people's native languages, even languages that they themselves had never learned. And as that Holy Spirit came down, that was the birthday of the Christian church. And on that first day of the Christian church, 3,000 people accepted Christ and were baptized. That's a taste of the kingdom, is it not? So many scholars would say that's what Jesus was referring to because on that day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people give their lives to Christ, 11 of the 12 apostles were there as witnesses. The only one that wasn't was Judas Iscariot who had already committed suicide. But 11 of the 12 apostles were there for that day of Pentecost. Either way you look at it, the transfiguration that happened a week later or the descending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that happened uh, a year or so later, either way, Jesus' words were fulfilled. His followers were given a glimpse and a clear taste of his kingdom that was coming. Now, dive into verse 28 with me. Let's dive into the transfiguration specifically here in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. It says it was about eight days later. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountainside to pray. This account here of the transfiguration of Jesus is also recorded for us over in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. It's also recorded in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all saw this event in Jesus' life as so important, they all recorded it in their gospel accounts. And the reason we refer to this account as the transfiguration You won't find that word transfiguration here in Luke 9, but you will find that word in Matthew's account and in Mark's account. Let's look at that word briefly. This word transfigured is a translation of the Greek word metamorpho. Now remember that the New Testament was originally written in a language called Koine Greek. It was a common everyday form of the Greek language, a little bit different than classical Greek that like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates wrote in. It was Koine Greek, a a common language Greek, and that's what the New Testament was originally written in. And so when we translate the New Testament into any language, we translate it from the original Koine Greek into our language. And so when we translate it into English, most of the time the English translators will take that word metamorpho and translate it as transfigured. That word metamorpho can be translated into English as either transfigured or transformed, or as you might guess by looking at the word, our English word metamorphosis. To me, that one has the most punch to it. I like that translation the best. Jesus, in this account, is metamorphosed in front of his disciples. It's an amazing thing that happens. That word metamorpho means literally a change of appearance that comes from within. And so when we use the word metamorphosis in the English language, most of the time we think of a butterfly, right? You've got this ugly caterpillar. You look at the thing and say, man, that thing's kind of ugly. You look at that caterpillar 
and that caterpillar will spin a cocoon or a chrysalis, and you give it a few days or so, and all of a sudden that chrysalis begins to crack, and all of a sudden this beautiful butterfly emerges from this cocoon, and we're all amazed that this ugly old caterpillar became a gorgeous butterfly. That's a metamorphosis. Inside that cocoon, the ugly caterpillar is transformed. It's metamorphosed into something new and miraculous. It was a change, a metamorphosis from within. A similar thing happens with Jesus. That glory existed within him all along, didn't it? But we learn in Scripture that when people looked at Jesus when he walked the earth, there was nothing in his appearance that was particularly outstanding. It's not like the ladies were looking at him, whoa, this guy looks like he's a first century Tom Cruise. I kind of see kind of a George Clooney going on here. Justin Bieber a little bit maybe. No, they didn't look at him and say, man, this guy is just the most handsome dude I've ever seen. He was rather plain looking, the scriptures say. And so his face isn't glowing and his stature, maybe he's not exactly having the best posture. There's nothing stunning about Jesus' appearance as he walked the earth. But as we look at this account here, it's incredibly stunning, isn't it? And so he's metamorphosed. The glory is within, but on this particular occasion, uh, Jesus allowed the glory to leak out a little bit more than usual, and Peter, James, and John are able to experience it. It was a metamorphosis, a transformation from the inside out. Now, Jesus invites only three of his twelve disciples to witness this transfiguration. So Jesus, Peter, John, and James, they head up a mountain to pray. And as we've seen over the last few Sundays, amazing things happen when Jesus prays. Amen? So verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So this experience was so amazing and it was so unheard of that it really defies description. So one thing that's good to do when you study a passage in the Gospels, if that passage is recorded in some of the other Gospels as well, it's a good idea as you're studying God's Word to read those other accounts as well because altogether they'll give you more details. And that's exactly the case here with the transfiguration. This is such an indescribable event. It's interesting. Matthew and Mark and Luke all use different words to describe Jesus' clothes and face as he was transfigured. So Matthew writes these words. Matthew writes, Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. That's pretty bright, isn't it? Mark says it this way. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And then as we just read here in Luke, verse 29, Luke writes, The appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So you put all those descriptions together, and you can imagine that Peter and John and James looked up and saw Jesus, and it says that they were getting a little groggy and dozing off here. And so they look up from their little prayer nap. Ever had a prayer nap? Most of us have at some point. or They're having a prayer nap. By the way, a little tangent here. There are three times in the Gospels 
where Jesus allows Peter, James, and John to experience something that the other nine apostles didn't get to see. One was when they went into the room to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only Peter, James, and John were in the bedroom. The other time is here. The third time is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus goes a little deeper into the garden. He has Peter, James, and John go with him. These three times that Peter, James, and John are kind of brought apart from the other nine apostles and given a privilege that the other nine were not given, during two of those three occasions, we find those three guys falling asleep. Imagine, given this wonderful privilege by Jesus, and two out of the three times you doze off. Well... Peter, James, and John were far from perfect. Maybe that's encouraging to you as you're working on developing your prayer life and you keep on dozing off and you say, God, why? Well, he's given you Peter, James, and John to comfort you a little bit. You're not alone. You're not alone. So anyways, they describe in three different uh, uh, wordings what was going on with Jesus here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all trying their best to describe this indescribable scene. And this is one of those occasions where we know for a fact that Peter, James, and John were scared to death because Matthew says that very clearly in Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. He writes, When the disciples heard God's voice, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. And so what goes on in the course of events, they're up on this mountain praying with Jesus. And as Jesus is praying, they get a little heavy-eyed. They're getting a little groggy. They're trying to stay awake, but they end up dozing off. Once they open their eyes and they're waking up, they look up to see, "Ah! Jesus is glowing like the sun, and he ain't alone. He's got two men next to him, and they can clearly somehow recognize that one of these dudes is Moses and the other dude is Elijah. And they're glowing too. They're kind of like the sun, kind of like a bolt of lightning. Their, their clothes were white, but not a normal earthly white. It was whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And, and so finally, Peter begins to speak up and say something to Jesus. And then the cloud comes and covers them. And as the cloud covers them, the voice from God the Father in heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And at that point, Matthew tells us that these guys fell face down on the dirt and they were terrified. There were times in recent months when Peter, James, and John had been terrified in the presence of Jesus. The, the most noteworthy of those times is when they were thinking that they were going to die in that storm on the Sea of Galilee. Their boat's rocking back and forth, and the waves are crashing, and Jesus is snoozing in the back of the boat. Remember that? And Jesus, they wake him up. Don't you care if we drown? He stands up. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and the sea is suddenly calm. And their jaws drop, and they were terrified because they said even the wind and the waves obey him. But as terrified as they were on that occasion, it seems clear that Peter, James, and John were even more terrified on this occasion. Now, Peter speaks up as we get to, what is that, verse 32? Peter speaks up. He says in verse 33, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, sometimes when Peter speaks up to Jesus, what he says is, is, is very timely and very brilliant. This was not one of those occasions. What he says is not timely, and it's certainly not brilliant. Luke tells us he did not know what he was saying. 
Over the years, I've wondered what exactly was wrong with Peter's suggestion. It always seemed a little goofy to me. You know, what's he actually saying? Jesus, you want me to go gather some sticks and some branches and make you guys some some little uh, stick huts? Uh, One for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. Now, it struck me as silly over the years, but not necessarily wrong. So what's so wrong about what he's saying here? I think we can discover the answer as we look a little more closely at what we read in verses 34 through 36. Notice those verses again, starting in verse 34. While Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. We find out in Matthew that Jesus specifically says, Don't tell the other disciples what you just saw until after the resurrection. So the question was, why was Peter's suggestion so wrong? What's the big deal with saying, hey, okay, if I build you three guys, three different shelters, and you can hang out a while? Well, I think the more foundational question that we need to answer first is this one. What was the purpose of Jesus' transfiguration in the first place? What's the point of this? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Obviously, it's important for some reason. What was the point of the transfiguration? Well, after studying this passage and consulting several good commentaries, I've come to the conclusion that there were two purposes for this transfiguration. Number one, you can jot this down on your handout. The first was for Jesus' benefit. The first reason for the transfiguration was for Jesus' benefit, specifically to encourage him as he began to make his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Now, it had just been one week since Jesus, for the first time, had been crystal clear with his disciples. We are going to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected by those Jewish leaders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And then three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. So it had just been a week since he told his disciples point blank for the first time that his path was a path of suffering and dying. So God the Father, one week after Jesus shares that with his disciples for the first time, just one week later, God the Father sends Jesus two of the greatest leaders in Israel's history to encourage him. That makes sense, doesn't it? I like how William Barclay explains it. He writes, Jesus had gone to the mountain to seek the approval of God for the decisive step that he was about to take. There Moses and Elijah appeared to him. Moses, who was the greatest lawgiver of the people of Israel, and Elijah, who was the greatest of the prophets. It was as if the princes of Israel's life and thought and religion told Jesus to go on. I like that. It's as if the the princes of the Old Testament, the one who represented the school of the prophets, Elijah, one of the greatest miracle workers of the Old Testament, and then Moses, who had personally held those tablets under his arms as he had been given the Ten Commandments by God on Mount Sinai. Moses comes forth and Elijah comes forth. They represent the law and the prophets. And the first reason this transfiguration took place because God the Father wanted Jesus to know that you have the full support of heaven on what you're about to do. Keep going forward, Jesus. Keep doing what you were born to do. As Jesus and Moses and Elijah stood there on that mountain in glorified form, discussing Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection, 
it may have been the greatest Bible conference in the history of planet Earth. Kind of cool to think of it that way. We've been to some good camps in the past, some good Bible conferences in the past. They can't hold a candle to what was going on on the mountain this day. Hands down, the greatest Bible conference of all time. Well, there was a second reason I believe God allowed this transfiguration to take place. And second reason why it's recorded here in God's Word. And that was for the disciples' benefit. The disciples' benefit. It was to put God's seal of approval on Peter's good confession while affirming Jesus' path to the cross. You see, one week earlier, Peter had made that confession of faith. He had with his own mouth said, I believe, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he still was wrestling with what exactly that meant. And so when Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up on that mountain. It was no accident that he chose these three and that one of those three was Peter who had voiced that good confession just one week earlier. Jesus invites them up and and God the Father is putting his seal of approval, his endorsement on that confession that Peter had given just one week earlier. Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, but in his own mind, Peter was still confused about what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. But as God speaks, he tells the disciples plainly, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He has explained to you what it means for him to be the Christ. He has explained to you that he must go to Jerusalem and be rejected and suffer and die. So listen to him. Listen to him. So there's two parts to Peter's confession. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God speaks to the second of those first. He says, this is my Son, confirming what Peter had said. You confessed a week ago, Peter, that Jesus is the Son of God. Here you are right now hearing the voice of God the Father in heaven, confirming what you have said, affirming your words. Yes, he is the Son of God. I'll tell you that myself. He is my son. And then the second part of that, or the first part of that confession was, you are the Christ. And God speaks to that second. Not only is he my son, whom I have chosen and whom I love, he says, secondly, listen to him. So when he said, you are the Christ, Peter had a week earlier, and Jesus on the heels of that says, this is what it means for me to be the Christ, I am going to suffer and die. God the Father says, listen to what my son has explained to you because it's still not sinking in. You are correct. He is the Christ and the son of the living God. And I am letting you know that that is exactly who he is. He is my son and he is the Christ. And what he tells you about the Christ, even if it goes against anything that all the rabbis in Israel have taught you, even if it goes against all that you've learned over your lifetimes, listen to Jesus because he knows what he's talking about when he says that he is going to suffer and die and raise from the grave three days later. So God gives this transfiguration moment as a gift to the disciples to confirm and approve Peter's good confession while at the same time affirming Jesus' path to the cross. So let's get back and circle back to that original question about Peter. Why was it so wrong for Peter to want to put up three shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Well, the answer, I think, boils down to motive and mission. Let me ask you, why do you suppose Peter wanted to put up those three shelters? 
Was it for his own benefit or for God's benefit? Did God need three shelters? Did Jesus, Elijah, and Moses need three shelters? No. What was his motive? Was his motive selfish? Well, I can never speak to the motive of a man's heart, can I? Well, God can, because God knows the heart inside and out. And so all we have to do is look at what God the Father says here on the heels of Peter's statement. Hey, how about if I build you guys some shelters? Notice what God says, because God does know the motives of Peter's heart. And notice what he says. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Why does he say that on the heels of Peter's request? And if you look carefully at the account in these verses, God the Father doesn't even let Peter finish what he's saying when he interrupts and tells him these words, this is my son whom I have chosen and love. Listen to him. By the way, if you're looking carefully at the text, you say, Dane, you keep on saying this is my son I love. It's not there. You'll find that over in Matthew. And so I'm saying those two accounts together. This is my son whom I love and I have chosen. Listen to him. And so we, we can't really blame Peter that he wanted this mountaintop experience to continue on. I think it's safe to say, based on what God says to him here, that Peter had more of a selfish motive in wanting to build those shelters than a God-serving motive. And as I thought about this, you know, I thought, yeah, I, I really can't blame Peter. Because when we get on that mountaintop, we want that experience to continue, don't we? Peter wanted this moment to continue. He saw that Elijah and Moses were starting to make a U-turn, and they were going to head back to wherever it was they had come from. And Peter didn't want them to go yet. He wanted them to stay. He wanted this moment to linger. But there are really ultimately two problems with Peter's suggestion to build these shelters. Problem number one, by offering to build equal shelters, it seems clear that Peter thought that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were equals. I haven't really thought about that much in the past until studying this passage this past week. But you think about it. Peter is saying, yeah, I want to build a shelter for Moses and a shelter for Elijah and, and also a shelter just like that for you, Jesus. He seemed to, in his mind, thought that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were equals. But even in glorified form, Moses and Elijah were never Jesus' equals, were they? Jesus was in a league of his own. When God the Father interrupted Peter by covering them with a cloud and speaking the words, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God was making it crystal clear that Moses was not God's son. He was making it clear that Elijah was not the one they were supposed to be listening to on a daily basis. He wasn't the chosen Christ. Only Jesus was. Jesus alone. On this day, Elijah and Moses were for the first time seen by men in their glorified heavenly form. But even though they were glowing like Jesus, they were not in the same league as Jesus, were they? One day, you and I who follow Jesus Christ will be there in heaven with God and with Jesus, and we will be given glorified bodies. Amen? How many of you are feeling some aches and pains this morning, and that glorified body is looking better and better every day? One day we'll be given those glorified bodies. This, I think, is the, probably the, the, the clearest picture of what our bodies may look like. Those 
eternal bodies that never decay, that never break down, that never have to go to the hospital, that never have to take medication. This gives us a glimpse of what they'll probably look like. So I think that's pretty cool. You know, Gary over here, man, that, that face is maybe going to be glowing like a flash, of, a flash of lightning. That's going to be pretty cool. And we got Mitch back here, man. That, that Those clothes he's wearing, woo! What kind of bleach are you using, man? That's bright white. I could never bleach something that white. And so when we have these bodies, they will much, very likely look like the bodies of Elijah and Moses here. And so I got to thinking of that this weekend. I thought, well, if our bodies are going to be so hard to look at, because obviously Peter, James, and John were kind of shielded in their eyes, it was so bright, God must be giving us new eyes as well, amen? New eyes that can handle looking at the glorified forms of those around us. But as I was thinking about this, Moses and Elijah touched down on planet Earth on this particular day, and they were glowing like Jesus. And their faces were radiant, much like Jesus. But when you and I get to heaven and we're given those glorified bodies, and we're given those clothes that never break down or soil or decay, the fact is, even if we were to look on those bodies with human eyes and say, wow, you look a lot like Jesus, the fact is, we will never be just like Jesus. Jesus is in a league of his own. And the disciples seem to have made a mistake on this day thinking that because with their human eyes the three men looked the same, that somehow they were in the same league. And it's important for us to not get big heads about how much better our heavenly bodies will be, as much as those heavenly bodies will be far superior to these bodies we have on earth, the fact still remains that today and tomorrow and throughout all eternity, Jesus is and Jesus always will be in a league of his own. Problem number two with Peter's suggestion. By trying to prolong Jesus' time on the mountain, he was trying to delay Jesus' God-given mission off the mountain. Think about that for a moment. By trying to delay Jesus' time on the mountain, excuse me, by trying to prolong his time on the mountain, he was trying to delay his mission off the mountain. And when you think about it, that's a serious matter, especially considering how serious Jesus' mission was. Now, in all fairness, I think we can relate with Peter. I know I can. Many of us have been to camps or conferences or mission trips, and we did not want that mountain-high experience to end, did we? I've had a number of times up at the camp we support each year, Angelus Crest Christian Camp, right up there off of Highway 2. I've had many times up at camp over my life, because I've been going to that camp for about 35 years. And I've had many times over those years where I did not want to come back down the mountain. God's Spirit was moving and the worship was awesome and the messages were powerful and we were having these quiet times and no phones were ringing and there were no interruptions with email and and, and no kids screaming. Well, sometimes there were kids screaming up there, but that's beside the point. There were times that were so powerful up there, I did not want that time on the mountain to end. But we can't stay on the mountain forever, can we? And I was thinking this weekend... Those many times I've been up at Angelus Crest or on those mission trips and I didn't want it to end. I was asking myself the question, what would have happened if I had gotten my desire, if I had gotten my wish and I hadn't ever come down the mountain? And I got to thinking, you know what? 
If I hadn't ever come down the mountain, then I would be missing the opportunity to help my wife raise our four beautiful daughters. If I hadn't come down the mountain, I wouldn't have been able to pastor this church. If I hadn't come down the mountain, I wouldn't have been able to do the dozens upon dozens of funerals that God has given me the opportunity to to do and, and be there at that time of need for family after family after family. I wouldn't have been able to be there in that baptistry for the some 200 baptisms I've had the privilege of help leading in the past. And so I got to thinking I had to come down that mountain as much as I wanted to stay. God had a mission for me off the mountain, didn't he? And we can understand why Peter would want that moment to continue. You know, he's only human. My goodness, there's Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And all my life I've been taught about Elijah. And how he stood up there on that mountain with the prophets of Baal. And he prayed that humble prayer. And fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar. And even the rocks and the water underneath the altar. And everyone fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. All my life I've heard about this great hero Elijah. And now I get to see him face to face. I've heard about Moses and how he got ticked off as he had that first set of tablets when he saw the people of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And he chucked those tablets down and they, they were obliterated into a hundred pieces. And I've heard about Moses, how he went back up and he would come down from meeting with God and his face would glow because of the Shekinah glory of God reflecting off of his face as he had met with God. Oh, I've heard about Moses. Now I'm seeing him face to face. Please, can we allow this moment to linger just a while, Jesus? And God the Father speaks so Jesus doesn't have to. And God the Father says, no, this moment it needs to end. This is my son. He is my chosen one. Listen to him. And as soon as God finishes speaking and the cloud dissipates, Moses and Elijah are already gone. Peter wanted to prolong Jesus' time on the mountain. He was delaying Jesus' God-given mission. But we see in the upcoming passage that it was imperative for Jesus to come down from the mountain because there was a part of his mission awaiting him in the next town over. What Peter, James, and John didn't know is while they were having this amazing mountaintop experience, All hell was breaking loose at the bottom of the mountain with the other nine apostles. They had no clue what was going on, but it was absolute pandemonium. It was absolute chaos what was going on with the other nine apostles. And Jesus knew it was time to come down the mountain and continue his mission. Let's pick up in verse 37 and read about that. Chapter 9, verse 37 says, The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. Now this term, threw him to the ground, in the original Greek, it was a term used in a wrestling match or a boxing match. In a boxing match, when someone did maybe an uppercut and left that person's chin flailing backwards and that person dropped like a bag of rocks on that mat, that's the word used here, a knockout punch. Or in wrestling, when that wrestler gets the advantageous 
upper hand position and throws his opponent to the mat and pins him down. That's the word used here. So this demon is throwing this boy to the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Real quickly, in this passage, we see a clear contrast between the strength of Jesus and the weakness of his followers without him. A clear contrast. The strength of Jesus, the weakness of his followers. I think this is an amazing passage. Those nine disciples all together could not drive out this demon. All you have to do is flip back to the first two verses of chapter 9 here in Luke and see that in the first two verses, Jesus gave his disciples, all 12 of them, power and authority to drive out all demons. So it's not even the end of the chapter. Each individual disciple could drive out all demons. Nine of them together couldn't drive out this demon. What gives? Jesus tells us in Matthew and Mark the reason they could not drive out this particular demon is because this one only comes out through faith-filled prayer. You see what happened when Jesus was up on that mountain with Peter, James, and John as the other nine disciples were getting a little comfortable with their ability to perform miracles and they forgot that they were continually responsible to lean on Jesus Christ and stay plugged into his power source. The disciples' power and authority to perform miracles had faded because they had unplugged from the power source. Do you suppose the same is true for us today? You bet it is. I'd like to leave you with one final insight from this great passage, and it's an insight from William Barclay as he writes, In no incident is the sheer competence of Jesus so clearly shown. Into this scene of disorder came Jesus. He gripped the situation in a flash, and in his mastery the disorder became a calm. Only the master of life can deal with life with the calm competence that brings everything under control. I believe some of you need to hear that word today. Some of you are here today and you've served Jesus Christ for a long time. Some of you have served Him for many years. But at this particular moment, you look at your own life and it looks like absolute chaos to you. And I want to tell you today, if your life appears to you to be absolutely chaotic, if it seems like it's utter chaos right now, you have to do exactly what the disciples had to do on this day. In faith-filled prayer, you lean on Jesus because He is the most competent person who has ever walked the face of this earth. And as we come with our disorder and our chaos and bring it to Jesus Christ, He can bring a calm to your chaos. He can. You know that, don't you? And so Jesus thankfully came off of that mountain. He didn't listen to Peter. He didn't allow that moment to linger because there was this chaos on the base of that mountain, below the mountain, that needed His undivided attention. And Jesus came down and He brought calm to the chaos. And Jesus Christ can bring calm to your chaos today just like He did back then. Lord, we come to You and we thank You that You bring calm 
in the midst of a storm. Help us, Lord, to lean on you, to trust in you, to bring our problems, our disorder, our sin to you. And we pray that you would do what you do so well, speak peace into our storm and bring calm to our chaos. Help us, Lord, when you give us those moments on the mountain. Those moments on the mountain are wonderful. They're necessary. But I pray that we wouldn't linger on the mountain any longer than you desire. That we would come down into the valleys of this chaotic world and carry out the mission that you have for us. Help us to carry out your marching orders even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's burdensome. Help us, Lord, to carry forth your orders that you have for us. And Lord, once again, please bring calm to the chaos. In Jesus' name, amen.